This is episode 79 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his third appearance on the podcast. He's a contributor to heavyhockey.com, Post Cologne. Post, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Yeah, man, I've been looking forward to having you back on the podcast. And as I mentioned, you're one of the newest members here at the Heavy Hockey Network. And you wrote an article on your 2023-24 NHL standings predictions back in October, which will also tie into what we'll be talking about tonight. But first, I just want to know, uh, how's your experience been since joining the Heavy Hockey team and getting to know the rest of the guys a bit? Uh, it's been really positive. Um, it's good to uh, see a group of people as passionate as I am about the Oilers and the NHL in general. And uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying my time so far. That's awesome, man. And um, yeah, we we definitely have a great group of writers and podcast hosts here at the Heavy Hockey Network, uh, yourself included. And, you know, I look forward to reading more articles from you this season. Yeah, I have a few ideas uh, that I've been speculating on, but uh, my latest one I wanted to do about the Oilers reasons for starting slow has already become out of date. So <laughs> they keep you on your toes. That's a probably a good reason for an article to get canceled, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, do you have any other teaser that you can pass out quickly of just something that you might be interested in looking into a little more? Uh, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but... Um, you know, I know we're going to talk about Jay Woodcroft later in the podcast, but um, I'm curious to dig in a little deeper on the numbers um, that Knobloch has had and maybe one of uh, Woodcroft's better stretches, um, you know, taking a sample size of maybe his best 12 game sample size versus Knobloch's latest to see how they compare. Um, but that's something that could be evaluated uh, down the road, maybe after the entire season as well. For sure. And I mean, just off the top of my head, the Oilers ended last season on a 14-0-1 run. So uh, Woodcroft, or uh, Knobloch hasn't quite reached a 15-game unbeaten streak in regulation, but uh, uh, definitely this run has been one of the best in the McDavid era, for sure. Yeah, I think they finished the regular season 18-2-1 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And including their first round series against the Kings, the Oilers went 21 straight games without a regulation loss last year. I think that's considered good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's very good. And it's it's a shame how that series ended uh, against Vegas in the second round because they were right with them through four games tied two to two. And it could have been anyone's series. And um, I don't know about you, but I really believe that if the Oilers would have got past Vegas, that uh, no, neither Dallas or Florida would have stopped them. I agree. Uh, I think the Oilers were probably the Stanley Cup favorite uh, amongst those three teams had they advanced. Yeah, it was. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but that second round series, in my opinion, was the true Stanley Cup final last year. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and uh, post, the Edmonton Oilers are currently the hottest team in the NHL. They beat the Chicago Blackhawks 4-1 to at Rogers Place last night to extend their winning streak to a league-best eight games. And they are now just one point, or sorry, one win away, I should say, from matching the franchise record for longest winning streak, which was set back in 2001 and equaled last season. But before we get into that, let's just go back to the start of training camp 
expectations were extremely high for this club coming into the 2023-24 season, and rightfully so. Uh, As we just talked about, the Oilers were coming off a 109-point season and gave the eventual Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights their toughest series in the playoffs last spring. I picked the Oilers to finish first in the Pacific Division during my season preview podcast back in October. I know you picked them to win the division as well in your article. However, they fell flat on their face out of the gate with an embarrassing 8-1 loss to one of their biggest rivals in the season opener. And things just continue to get worse from there, winning just two of their first 12 games and sitting second last in the NHL standings in early November. Uh, Post, following that terrible 2-9-1 start, were you beginning to think that this team wasn't as good as we originally thought? Or did you think it was just a matter of time until they got back on track? Uh, yeah, I won't lie. I had a bit of a crisis of faith about this team, um, especially after picking them to win the division uh, by a small margin, but still I, I thought they were worthy of doing that. Um, I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me in the, in the first 12, 14 games of the season that caused me to have my doubts was the ineffectiveness of the bottom six. Um, I think Bob Stoffer had mentioned that a couple of times as well, where the dynamic was... Um, you know, as is usually the case, they don't provide a great deal of offense. I think even right now, um, the orders are 31st or 32nd, maybe, in terms of the percentage of team goals coming from their bottom six forwards. Um, and also, this is when Sam Gagne was in the American Hockey League and Raphael right. Lavoie spent a, a bit of time with the team, and there was a lot of flux and almost no production. Um, that's changed of late, but. Um, yeah, that's that's a big reason why I, I was really starting to have some doubts about the Oilers as a whole. Um, obviously, the Jack Campbell situation was was weighing heavily on everybody, fans, the organization, and I'm sure the the core members of the team. Um, so I can't say that I'm, I'm back yet. I'm my guard is still <laughs> up about this team, but yeah, the doubts were uh, were very prevalent. Yeah, and I, I, you definitely weren't alone there. And I mean, when I look at this team on paper and the areas of strength and weaknesses. Uh, scoring goals is definitely not a weakness for this club. They scored hundred or sorry, 325 goals last season, which was the second most by a team in the 21st century, I believe, behind only the Florida Panthers two years ago. So they have this elite offensive connection up front, uh, arguably the best top six in the league. And when you have that much firepower, in your top six, I think that it can overcome maybe some scoring deficiencies in the bottom six. So that's, that wasn't like a big concern for me, but um, you know, you're on Oilers Twitter. I am as well. There was obviously panic in the fan base when they only had, like I said, two wins through their first 12 games. And you were starting to see some people say things like, this is the beginning of the end of the McDavid era in Edmonton, or um, if they fall in crater in a cup or bust season, uh, don't expect uh, any of the the big guys to be back next year. Uh, did you ever reach that level of panic, or did you feel like, regardless of this tough stretch that there would at least be something to hope for going forward. Like it it wasn't like the beginning of the end as maybe some people thought it could be. I mean, you want to stay rational and say that, um, you know, once we reach the quarter and half mark uh, point of the season that we can reevaluate then. But I think being a fan is inherently an irrational thing. Those thoughts do go through your head. Yeah. It's Um, short for fanatic, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, again, it's kind of a difficult question to answer because it, it's something that I'm aware of and that I, I do think about. I can't say that I was fully on board of being definitively in the camp of, uh, you know, the entire era hinges on these next 20 games. I, I think that's maybe a bit of a stretch, but, um, you know, I, I'd be lying to you if, if I said it wasn't something that uh, crossed my mind. For sure. And I mean, if you look at this team, they've been they've been a good team in the NHL since 2019-20. For four consecutive years, they finished second in their division, Uh, three times in the Pacific Division and once in the all Canadian division during the pandemic. But they have had a tough stretch in each of those four years that they've somehow managed to overcome. And they've historically been a very strong second half team in the McDavid era. So I looked at it as like, well, they had that awful two eleven and 2 run two years ago, and the Oilers made it to the conference final. Last year, they were barely clinging to a, a wild card spot in early January, and they only had five regulation losses in the second half of the season and were one win away from finishing first place in the Western Conference. So that gave me a lot of, not, not just hope, but I, I had faith, like confidence, I should say, that that this team was much better than their record showed and that they would be able to get back to that level. It's just, if, if they're going to have a, a rough patch, let's get it out of the way early. It, it obviously went on a, a, a lot longer than uh, we would have expected it to, especially, you know, in a year where you are expected to be competing for a Stanley cup. And it, it wasn't just Oilers fans who were saying that this is a legit Stanley cup contender across the league. They were viewed as one of the favorites to win the cup. Uh, like, as I said, they were, just if if they uh, would have had two more points last year, they would have tied Vegas and they had the tiebreaker. So they would have ended up not only winning the Pacific Division, but the the Western Conference uh, regular season titles as well. They have the two best players in the league in their primes. They brought back virtually their entire core from last year, too. And even the, the team showed up two weeks ahead of training camp for captain skates. And if you looked at their schedule, the Oilers had eight of their first 12 games against teams that didn't make the playoffs. Uh, so everything was basically lining up for them to have a great start to the season, but the Stars weren't scoring, the power play went cold, they couldn't get a save, and simply put, they just had some bad luck. So, you know, that all kind of culminated into one of the worst starts in franchise history. Yeah, I think um, that's something that Oilers fans are uh, be more accustomed to than they should be. Um, you know, if, if we do bounce back and we make the playoffs, um, this will be the third consecutive season that we have a, a borderline miracle uh, take place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the year that uh, Woodcroft took over for Dave Tippett, um, the Oilers uh, were, I think, in late January, they were two games above 500, uh, second last in their division. And then we saw what happened last season uh, where they had a second half for the ages. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's really the the touchstone that I'm taking away from this team is they have this almost superhuman ability um, to go through stretches of extreme um, uh, success and and extreme droughts. So I, I don't know. I, it's hard to it's hard to understand a roster like this uh, that goes through these ebbs and flows. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there too. But I, like, are they going to be able to get to 100 points for the third consecutive season this year? Maybe not. But when you look at uh, the teams in the West that they're competing with for playoff spots. I mean, I, I think right now the projected 
cut line in the West is 85 points. Well, I'm confident the Oilers are going to sail past that. I, I'm I'm sure they're still going to finish in the 90s, and uh, perhaps they they do even get close to 100 if they are able to have another one of those incredible second halves to the season where they only lose um, single digits in in regulation games. But uh, despite how good Vegas, LA, and Vancouver have looked early on the season. Uh, do you think that the Oilers can climb into a top three spot in the Pacific still, or uh, are you thinking that if they do get in, that it's more likely going to be in a wild card spot this year? Well, I, I do think they're a wild card team um, because uh, simply they don't control their own destiny. Um, I have in pencil right now uh, Vancouver, LA, and Vegas in those top three spots. Not to say that the Oilers can't. Um, uh, just a second ago, I talked about how they're prone for these. Uh, miraculous comebacks but it's just you know the gap between them and vancouver who i do think will be the third team in the pacific is is so great and they've already you know gone on an eight game winning streak it's not something that you can sustain um you know for 20 30 games at a time um and but honestly i don't think there's a really there's a big difference um or uh, a motivation to crack the top three because whether you're a wildcard team you have to go through Pacific. two difficult teams to get to the conference final anyway. Exactly. You're probably, you know, if, if they expend all their energy fighting for third place, they're going to play the Los Angeles Kings yeah. in all likelihood. And if you finish in a wild card spot, you're going to get... Play Vegas. Uh, yeah, Vegas or Dallas or Colorado. Right. Um, so there's really no easy path unless you finish first in the Pacific. And I, I think it's safe to say that ship is sailed. It's very likely they're going to play an elite team in the first round anyway. So as long as they get in, I mean, I'm looking at the teams that they're battling with right now, Arizona and Nashville. I don't know. I'm pretty confident the Oilers are going to finish ahead of both of those clubs. Uh, neither one of them really scare me. Uh, I know that the, the Coyotes are a team on the rise, but realistically the Oilers have significantly more skill than them and, and they shouldn't be competing for, um, the same point totals by the time we're at the three-quarter mark of the season. So we'll check back in maybe 40 games and see where things are at. But, you know, looking at this right now, it's like you said, they're they're going to run into either Colorado or Dallas or uh, maybe Vegas, who seems to be running away with the Pacific. But, uh, I mean, that's a huge confidence boost, too. If you get into the playoffs and you knock off the Golden Knights in round one, I mean, you might be able to ride that wave of momentum through the, the rest of the spring. Yeah, exactly. And kind of like you mentioned earlier in the pod, how uh, Vegas was our Stanley Cup final in the second yeah. round. And I guess it's just happening one round earlier than it did last season. And it yeah. really does seem like they're on a collision course. Uh, I do believe the winners are the best team in the wild card race. And Vegas is primed to probably win the West, which means that there is a a really, really high chance that they will meet in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. And I mean, the Oilers have owned Vegas in the regular season over the past couple of years, and they did beat them twice in the playoffs last year. Both wins were fairly convincing, but you know, of course it was still a, a four to two series loss. So um, Vegas has the bragging rights, but I, I know the Oilers would be uh, overwhelming underdogs going into that series, but I, I don't know. I'm not as scared of Vegas because I know that this team has shown that they can beat them. It's just a matter of can they beat them four out of seven. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. Um, obviously, the PTSD about the Golden Knights last year <laughs> is, is fresh yeah. in Oilers fans' minds. Um, 
but yeah, I, I do think that they're they're a beatable team. Um, uh, even though they brought back almost the entire roster from last season, um, you know the Oilers. I don't think will look at the way they do today. Uh, on you know on game eighty three. No, no. I mean, look. I, I don't want this to turn into a, a Ken Holland bashing segment. I mean, if you if you want to go off on it, like by all means, but like. I think that there would be a lot of frustration in the fan base, even more so if he didn't trade the first round pick at the deadline. I mean, you have to, in a in an all in year with McDavid and Drysital, take that pick and turn it into a player who can help you, even if it's for two or three months this spring. Exactly. I mean, the stage that the Oilers are at uh, and the life cycle uh, as a Stanley Cup contender um, kind of reminds me of uh, Pittsburgh um, during the the mid twenty tens is you really can't afford to focus on drafting and developing. You have to go for it every single year, mm-hmm. except we don't have uh, the safety net of having a Stanley cup and, and um, on the team's resume. So yeah, the added pressure is even greater. And I mean, you, you look at a, like last year, probably their other than Matthias Ekholm, who was their, their biggest uh, trade deadline acquisition. The second biggest would have been uh, Nick Bukestad. And I thought that he was a very useful third-line center for them for the the short time that he was in Edmonton. And there were some people on, like we said, on Oilers Twitter who were upset with the fact that uh, Michael Kesselring was included in that deal. And, like, yes, um, he took a big step forward in Bakersfield last year, right-shot defenseman, sixth-round pick, who is finally starting to kind of push for being an NHL-ready player after what was it, five years. I I would have liked to obviously hold on to that player, but when you're in a year where you think that you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup and the Oilers are pushing to finish first in the Western Conference, I'm not as concerned with holding on to that defenseman when you can bring in a piece like Bukestad, who turned out to be like a really good deadline acquisition. Yeah, I, honestly, losing Bukestad and, and Costin, uh, is a key thing to identify in terms of why the Oilers have struggled a little bit to uh, a lot actually to come up. Who do you think was a bigger loss between Bukesad and Costin? Yeah. Um, that's a really difficult question. Um, I, I want to say Bukesad, um, as much as Costin was a fan favorite and he provided an element of physicality and, and clutch goal scoring at times that uh, is a bit more flashy. What Bukesad did was understated. Kind of like eating your vegetables, uh, to, <laughs> to use the example, uh, in terms of a hockey team. Wins face-offs, plays quiet minutes. Um, he's huge, is, enormous frame. I think he's, what is he, 6'4", 6'5"? 6'6". He's 6'6". Yeah, um, he, he's kind of the ideal third-line center, especially <laughs> for a team like this. To lose him... tip pucks. I mean, like he, he scored some big goals for the Oilers down that stretch, so I... I Man, like, I know he took $2 million and the Oilers apparently offered him $1 million. Um, and I guess it's hard to, like, make a case that he made the wrong decision at this point since the Coyotes and Oilers are sort of equal in the standings. But, uh, I mean, if, if we're being real, the Oilers are a better team and should be much higher in the standings. So I, I still think, like, man, Bukestad, if you would have just taken a little less to be a part of a contending team... But obviously, you know, he had to do what he, he thought was best for, for him. And uh, I, I guess I was also a little surprised because he made pretty good money in Florida earlier in his career. So I thought that at age 30, 
maybe trying to maximize your dollars wouldn't be priority number one. It would be getting a ring. Yeah, I mean, he's already secured the bag. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really understand his decision making either, especially signing with Arizona. Um, Made yeah, like twenty four mil in uh, Florida over six years, I think. So it's like you're, you're right now. You're in the prime of your career, and you're choosing to go back to a, a Coyotes team that, yeah, they're they're on the the up and up, but the Oilers are pushing for something right now, man. And apparently, he really enjoyed his time here. So I, I was surprised that that he didn't stay. I don't understand his decision whatsoever, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, like, can you imagine I mean, him on the third line right now, and and maybe Ryan McLeod down on the fourth line? Well, I mean, like how different will still be the coach of his team? <laughs> yeah, they, you know, you're probably right there. But um, yeah, it, it's it's a tough one. But still, uh, that that was a uh, one player that I think was a uh, was a tough loss for the Oilers. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, while it's hard to say that there was one specific player or thing that was entirely responsible for the Oilers' early struggles. Uh, Jack Campbell was undoubtedly probably at the top of the list of uh, players who received criticism from the fan base for you know his abysmal goaltending. I guess there's there's no other way to put it. And you know I'm not someone who likes to pile on the players. I'm a very optimistic, uh, supportive fan, and you know I, I was cheering for Jack Campbell to have uh, the redemption year, but. It just seemed like he couldn't get his game on track after a, a pretty good showing in the preseason. It just all seemed to fall apart again in the regular season. He posted some of the worst numbers in the league through five appearances until he was eventually placed on waivers and sent down to the AHL's Bakersfield Condors. Like like I said, post. I don't want to pile on Campbell too much here, but it, it reached a point where he was unplayable at the NHL level, wasn't he? He was, and it's really unfortunate because he's such a great person and a guy you want to cheer for yeah. to see him struggle like this. Not just as an Oilers fan, it's difficult to watch this on, on a human level, um, to see his confidence wane the way it does and the self-deprecating that's kind of taken a backseat this year, especially compared to last. I, I, don't, I can't recall seeing a starting goaltender join a contending team like this and then have such such a precipitous drop off. I, this is kind of a first. And the other thing is too, it, it's all mental, right? I mean, if you think about it, he was an American prodigy goalie as a teenager, three straight years. He was the starting goaltender for team USA at the world juniors in 2010, 2011 and 2012, uh, including winning a gold medal in my hometown of Saskatoon in 2010, which denied Canada a sixth straight gold medal at the tournament. Um, this guy has won every level up until he got to the pro level, and it just seemed like he wasn't able to put everything together. Uh, obviously, like you said, confidence and mental uh, stability, just not being able to shake off a, a bad goal, just letting it eat at him. Um, I don't know if a sports psychologist was able to really help him in the offseason or not with that, but it just you, you see even some of the highlights of him down in Bakersfield letting in kind of like a long range wrister that any pro goalie shouldn't have too much trouble with from the top of the circle. Just it, it's just like man, he he had three straight solid games down there, and then he'd have two bad ones in a row. And it's just like you need to see consistent, strong play at that level to have any confidence in bringing him back up to the NHL because. 
The Oilers need points in the standing so badly. And to bring him back up and give him another opportunity when every game means so much, I don't know. To me, it's just a very risky decision. So I don't know what they're going to do, but with what we've seen as of late, and we'll get into that a little more of that later. I want to stick with Campbell for now. I, I just, I, I don't know how they could, because of the situation they, the team has put themselves in, be able to give him another chance anytime soon. Well, I won't name names, but there was a, a well-known local pundit who did say that um, he believes Jack Campbell will spend the rest of the season in Bakersfield, mm-hmm. and then one way or another, he'll be uh, he'll be moved in the summer. Um, and he he felt pretty confident uh, in that in that prognostication. So, I, based on that, oh. I don't think that this is the kind of person who would say that. Uh, there's some bottom some feeders with cap space too, right? So th- there's got to be someone who can afford to take on his deal. I mean, you'd think that a team like San Jose, who's actively trying to be bad to get a high, another high draft pick this year, and maybe for the next few years, like they are years away from being competitive. Um, would it really be a big deal to them to have Jack Campbell on the books for the next three years when they're not a- anticipating making the playoffs in any of those years anyway? That's definitely a team you can identify to be a dance partner, but yeah. uh, I do think that you know they will weaponize cap space and and they'll try to get you know something of value out of the Oilers, um, whether it be you know a Lavoie or maybe a, a Borgo. I think the price to get to get rid of his contract, knowing where the Oilers are, like I said in their Stanley Cup life cycle, will be will be great, uh, no matter which team uh, ends up taking on his contract. I mean, we saw Mackenzie Blackwood goalie the Oilers just over a month ago when the Oilers went down to San Jose. And I'm not saying that he is the be-all, end-all in net, but I think that if you look at it a few years ago, how highly thought of he was as an up-and-coming goaltender, he might be able to give the Oilers steady enough goaltending in a return for Jack Campbell that if the Oilers uh, gave the Sharks Campbell and a sweetener um, for um, for Blackwood, that that could be a, a potential deal that maybe we could see happen. Yeah, I, I do think that's possible. It's just a matter of how sweet is sweet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the cupboards are are pretty bare, uh, and rightfully so, because you know I, I don't fault Ken Holland for uh, for going I mean, in and spending assets like um, um, in the Ekholm trade. His name is escaping me. Uh, Reed Reed Schaefer. Yeah. Um, yeah, like we, we've traded players uh, to improve the roster that exists, and I, I don't know I, who do we really have outside of Xavier Borgo um, to really interest them outside of maybe the first well, round pick. Well, that's what I was gonna say. You only have one first round pick this year, so you want to make sure that when you trade that, it's for the most important area you need to address in your roster. If the Sharks were willing to do Campbell and the Oilers' first-round pick for Blackwood, would you do that trade knowing that now they don't have that first to use at the deadline? Yes, essentially what you're asking is, uh, what do I value more, addition by addition or addition by subtraction? Um, (laughs) Well, they can't bring it, basically then they can't, bring in a third line center that they want or or if they do they're going to have to use a prospect or or a pick that's not the first rounder maybe you have to attach a, a second and a b-level prospect to address another area of need but obviously if you're trying to have that home run rental at the deadline the first round pick is what is going to get you that so 
um, I guess I'm saying is, is it worth giving up the first round pick to get out of the Campbell contract and bring in Blackwood? Um, I want to I want to lean yes, uh, simply due to the fact that McKinsey Blackwood makes uh, you know a shade under two point five million, um, yeah. and then maybe if you can get them to retain uh, a little bit on Campbell, which really won't have an effect on on their rebuild whatsoever. Um, maybe you can have a bit of a both and situation, um, where you can still you know maybe add a bottom six forward. You're not going to get right. a player on the level of Bugstad. Um, but it just means that your deadline acquisition, uh, <laughs> your, your options will be severely uh, reduced. And, and just before we move off of that, um, I mean, who knows what everything's going to look like uh, in late February when the trade deadline rolls around. But would you explore bringing Bukestad back again? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> if the Coyotes were willing to deal him again. Because he signed for next year, too, at $2 million, I believe, as well. So you'd, the Coyotes would have to take some money as well to make him fit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's, he's you know, I don't want to call him the missing ingredient. But, you know what uh, you're getting, though. Like, this is a, it's, it's a rental that you know he fits with the team. You know that he enjoyed being in Edmonton. Obviously, it'd be kind of strange to see a player go from Arizona to Edmonton to Arizona to Edmonton. But, um I mean, he's already got the money regardless of whether he plays in Phoenix or Edmonton. So, um, I don't know. I if I don't know if he'd be at the top of their list of uh, players that they'd be interested in bringing in. But I, I don't know. I, I would at least make the call to the Coyotes and see what the cost would be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also a matter of, like you said, Arizona's interest. I mean, they have young players on their roster that they're looking to to shepherd and uh, and shelter a little bit, so losing a player like that, who's yeah. you know really a, a top six forward on their team, um, that would you know maybe have a negative effect on on their mm-hmm. player development. Um, but if it was make it worth their while, um, I think it's something that you know we should strongly consider because again, a cup or bust. It's not an exaggeration. But like the Oilers really need they need to make some um, some some playoff headway this season. Um, so yeah, if if they can make that happen, then I would move heaven and earth to add Bukestad, Bukestad to this roster. And one lone bright spot in the Oilers' first six weeks of the season was the 2023 Heritage Classic at Commonwealth Stadium. I think it was easily the most significant battle of Alberta since the 2022 playoffs. And once again, the Oilers were victorious, beating their provincial rivals 5-2. Uh, Post, the last time I had you on the podcast was back in January when the event had just recently been announced about a month before, and you and I were speculating on which former Oilers players might be playing in the alumni game. And I remember you said that you were hoping to see the Ryan Smith-led Oilers versus the Jerome McGinley-led Flames. And ultimately, they chose not to have an alumni game at all. Uh, Instead, there was a pregame ceremony to commemorate several of the players and coaches from the inaugural Heritage Classic 20 years ago. But in your opinion... Was an alumni game the one thing that was missing from an otherwise great weekend for Oilers fans back in late October? Yes, um, I, I would say it's the primary reason why I didn't rush to uh, to go to the event. Um, that and the two three thousand dollar tickets. Uh, <laughs> I can tell yeah, you, I, I found tickets for cheaper than that. But 
yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure they were available, but the, the sight yeah. lines from, you know, the very, very top of the building were uh, maybe, maybe not the best, but yeah, I do think it was a really big missed opportunity. And these outdoor games are, are more so local events, I think, than they are yeah. league events. Um, so to not have an alumni game, I think was a big missed opportunity. And I really do hope that it's not, you know, it has nothing to do with the fact that a lot of guys uh, who would be in the game are executives based on the fact that Mark Messier was a literal New York Ranger and asked for leave to play in 2003. So I yeah. think that excuse is invalid. Yeah. And he was already like 43 years old too. So it, it, it just shows like, you know, the, the late, the legacy of that player. I mean, to play in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s in the NHL, just incredible. And um, I, I do think it would have been really cool, though, because, and like you said, it is maybe more of a regional event. Um, like, I'm not sure how much Vegas and Seattle playing at the Mariners Park on New Year's Day is going to interest fans across the league. So, uh, Yes, obviously the Oilers have Connor McDavid, and that's a huge draw. Leon Dreisaitl, two of the best players in the league. But does Edmonton and Calgary playing on a Sunday night when Sunday night football is on, is that going to capture the attention of an American audience? I thought that was very strange. Uh, And let's not get ourselves. The NHL is not exactly an expert when it comes to marketing themselves. Um, Well, it it was 5 p.m. local time, right? So that would be 7 p.m. Eastern time. I was fully dialed into the Heritage Classic that weekend, but Sunday Night Football must have been starting right around that time. Yeah, I mean, the NHL goes to great pains to avoid the NFL uh, at times, but to, to not sidestep them for a marquee event like this, I thought was strange. But if you're looking for consistency, this isn't the league for you. <laughs> uh, I mean, a great game, though. And like I said, I, I actually paid less for my ticket to. Uh, the Heritage Classic than I did for uh, game one of the playoff series between the Oilers and Kings a year ago. So that was uh, nice to find a ticket. I I got it back in June when they first came on sale. And I asked a few people and not everyone was ready to commit to it about five months before the event. So I just kind of had to say, well, I'm probably going to go alone. And, And that was completely fine. I, I was sitting around mostly Oilers fans, so it made for an awesome event. And um, I had a chance to go to the one in Winnipeg seven years ago as well. I think Winnipeg did a fantastic job hosting that. I'll give them credit. Um, but yeah, it, it was something that I think that it would have been great if they turned it into a full weekend. And I know the Oilers did a lot of interactive things um, around Rogers Place with uh, former players there and um, different things for kids and families. But I think that having that alumni game on the Saturday, the the day before the actual regular season game really would have made it an awesome weekend. That way you get to go to the stadium twice. There isn't as much pressure the first day because you're just going to see some uh, old childhood favorites of yours. Like I, I wanted to see Ryan Smith and Alish Hemsky out there. I thought maybe this is the one opportunity we'll get to see Chris Pronger back in an Oilers jersey. So <laughs> yeah, that would have been a cool thing, I think, if they would have done it. Yeah, um, I, the event. You know, I don't want to sound like I, I'm, I'm negative on it. It was it was great for the league. Uh, mm-hmm. Ultimately, it, it was you know it was good to see McDavid make a surprise appearance. It had its drama. The game was you know it was one of our, our few uh, you know nearly sixty minute efforts in, in the first uh, number of games of the season. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really do hope that uh, 
we can see another outdoor game uh, yeah. with, with Connor McDavid, maybe in Edmonton or maybe in Calgary would be fine. Um, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing, uh, well, I mean, uh, I don't think that Calgary is getting another um, outdoor game until they have a new football stadium. They did play one in 2011 there, but uh, I don't know if you've ever been to McMahon Stadium, but there is no way that the NHL will put another outdoor game uh, in that city until they have an upgraded facility. Yeah, that, that's probably true. Um, and that's not even me just being like, don't get me wrong, I am a Flames hater, but that's not even me in this instance trying to dump on the Flames. It is truly a terrible stadium. I mean, it's, it was built in 1960. Um, there's been <laughs> minimal updates to it. So I would say that for uh, the city of Calgary to have another game, like b- really both of their, their football stadium and hockey arena need to uh, have uh, huge improvements. And with city money and provincial money, for that matter, going towards the uh, the replacement for the Saddle Dome, which I think is about 40 feet north of the existing arena. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that'll uh, that'll deter uh, funds and uh, political sway that would have been spent maybe on a replacement for McMahon. So it's probably quite a ways away. Yeah, and I mean, like it's the university stadium too, right? So I don't know if, if the city of Calgary does get another football stadium, I would assume that the Stampeders and the Dinos would share that as well. It just makes sense, unless they think that um, for CIS football, McMahon Stadium is good enough for another number of decades. But uh, yeah, I think that I even heard uh, a couple of years ago that they had this field house uh, proposal that was going to have like the, the football stadium and the hockey arena right next to each other. I heard that too. I think they wanted to make it a package deal. Um, yeah. That, that's actually kind of a, a common thing that a lot of, a lot of major cities want to have with their sports teams, but are they, very, you know, very often don't end up working out. Yeah. Uh, and just before we move on from the Heritage Classic, I, I know you're a jersey collector like myself. So uh, give me your thoughts on the design of the Oilers Heritage Classic jersey, which obviously paid tribute to uh, the Edmonton Mercuries uh, from 1952. Do you have one? And if so, uh, which player did you get? I do have one. Uh, I have a Connor McDavid. Of and uh, got it. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, the jersey quality is really what what strikes you when you first see it. Um, the felt crest, felt numbers, and name kit um, really give it uh, an old timey feel. Um, uh, like I was saying to you earlier, I, I think uh, off mic, I'm a little bit concerned to see what Fanatics does in terms of the quality of number kits and crests. But uh, this just shows what a great job Adidas has done with NHL uniforms. Um, the design, I think, is it wouldn't work as a primary or maybe even an alternate, but for what it is for it to be an outdoor game, um, I think that it, it's, it's effective and it's, it's very high quality. Yeah. I, I loved it. Uh, I'm going to get a McDavid as well. I thought about getting it on that trip. Um, I'd already spent, uh, enough money for that one, uh, uh, weekend in Edmonton. So, uh, between a hotel and driving from Saskatoon to Edmonton and meals. So I, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll get it on my next trip out there. Uh, and uh, plus, when I, w- I looked at Summit Kingsway Mall and uh, Sports Closet was just swamped with people. And I usually like to get my jerseys at United Cycle anyway. So I'll probably stop through there and uh, might even check out Pro-Am Sports, see a few other places in town I've, I've bought from them as well. But uh, no, I love the jersey. I, I love the tribute. It was different too. Like We haven't seen the Oilers go away from their classic crest 
very often in their history. I mean, they've changed the coloring, um, but other really than the Oil Gear logo back in 2001, the Todd McFarlane design, this is really the first time that the Oilers have went away from their, their classic crest at all in the last 50 years. Yeah, I would say really outside of, say, Minnesota and Philadelphia, the Oilers are one of the teams who have had the least amount of variance with their, with their primary crest. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a new look. I think it's, I think it's something that um, adds a lot of variety. And a to paid their, tribute to a, an Edmonton team from the past that isn't Oilers connected. And that are probably a lot of uh, even Edmontonians have never heard of. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it's great to honor them. And I think the Edmonton Mercuries actually represented Canada at the Olympics. In they the did. 1950s. And they won gold. Yeah. So that, that's, that's something I, I think is, is worthy of honoring and commemorating. For and sure. uh, Cal- Calgary also had a, a team. Uh, I think they were called a hockey team called the Calgary Stampeders. It was. Yeah. Back in the 60s. Too. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's pretty cool that they had uh, matching thematics and you know the off white that everybody loves with these outdoor games. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and once again, this isn't just to make an Edmonton is better than Calgary thing, but I think legitimately, if you look at the two jerseys, the Edmonton one is nicer. Uh, marginally, I think they're both really sharp. I think what really sets the orders one apart for me is the uh, the leather inspired coloring of the gloves and the pants. And the goalie pads, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Do you it like really the, adds a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I love Stuart Skinner's design, kind of um, paying homage to uh, Grant Fear with his 80s-style uh, uh, goalie pads. Did, uh, what did you think of the the inclusion of each player's individual number in the oil drop? It makes a huge difference uh, in terms yeah. of buying a blank versus buying a name and number jersey. It, it fills it out, for sure. Yeah, I, I you know usually that doesn't matter to me. I often will buy blank jerseys because mm-hmm. they're you know roughly a hundred dollars cheaper. But exactly. This is a jersey where you need to have a name and number. And I mean, uh, McDavid, great pick to go with. I believe he had one assist in the game. Would have been awesome to have him score. What we're going to talk more about uh, uh, McDavid and the Heritage Classic coming up, but or uh, getting into the Heritage Classic, I should say. But uh, no, it was uh, it's an awesome jersey. Uh, I can't wait to add one to my collection and. Uh, we'll get to see it one more time this year because the Oilers are going to wear it on February 24th when the Battle of Alberta is back at Rogers Place. And that's the day before our heavy hockey showdown charity game on the 25th. So uh, a bunch of the guys from the heavy hockey team will all be there watching the game together and then we'll have our charity game the next day. So uh, at least you'll get to see it one more time uh, worn this season. And I believe the Oilers will see Calgary wear their heritage jersey in the Saddledome. It would make as sense. Well. Yeah, it, it would make sense to do that as well. Um, January twenty first, I believe. Yeah, it's a hockey night in Canada game in January. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, and as a result of the Oilers' horrible start, head coach Jay Woodcroft and assistant coach Dave Manson were both fired on November 13th and replaced with Chris Knobloch and Oilers legend Paul Coffey. Now, new CEO Jeff Jackson might have made this move in the offseason anyway, but after falling to the bottom of the standings, that probably caused Jackson to expedite the process. Post, did you think that the Oilers needed to make a coaching change, or would you prefer that they hold on to Woodcroft and bank on the players to eventually right the ship. 
Uh, I'll be frank. I, I think the Oilers made a critical error uh, firing Jay Woodcroft, and that's nothing against Knobloch. I think he's done a fine job. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I do say uh, that uh, you know I, I subscribe to the belief that Jay Woodcroft is one of the premier coaches in the NHL, and he'll be the bell of the ball this off season to whichever team is is lucky enough to have him. Yeah, and I mean I totally expect that he will be coaching in the NHL again next season. There, there'll be, I mean, we already saw St. Louis fire Berube yesterday, and I'm sure that there's going to be uh, more coaching changes that will happen in the next six months. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, comes in to uh, meet for multiple organizations. And I don't know, he, like you said, he might even have his pick of where he goes. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if I recall correctly, the underlying numbers of Jay Woodcroft with this team were sensational. He mm-hmm. has the highest winning percentage in franchise history. Granted, the sample size is a little bit smaller than, than some other coaches, yeah. um, but big enough to, to make a, a judgment. Um, he, you know, for, for a guy who's recognized as a typical player's coach, um, you know, he, he wasn't always good cop. Uh, you know, you've, you've seen him, you know, he's understated, but he, he can maybe lose his temper at times. And you saw it towards the end. He was a little bit snippy with, with a certain uh, member of Sportsnet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was kicked. He was actually kicked out of a game for arguing a call in Vancouver. Exactly. So, you know, when you think of a guy who's, you know, a, a player's coach and, and jovial in the room and well-liked, um, he doesn't meet all of those stereotypes. So I, I think that makes him a versatile coach. And I think that what we recognize best about him is he's an excellent communicator, um, probably the best communicator that I've seen um, be on this coaching staff or even in any executive role. Um, that's what sticks out to me most about Jay Woodcroft. Yeah, I mean, when I heard that uh, they were going to make the the switch, I, I was disappointed because I, I really liked Jay. And I mean, I think that, he he won a place in Oilers fans' hearts very quickly. Like like you mentioned a little earlier, he was uh, the the guy that came in and turned this team around late in the the twenty twenty one twenty two season. Uh, they had just uh, lost a, a game in uh, February to the Blackhawks, and you know it seemed like you know the playoffs might be slipping away, and then he came in and immediately turned the, everything around, and they got in and knocked off LA in the first round, knocked off Calgary in the second round and um, had a, an epic moment flinging the door open after McDavid's series winning goal in overtime. And I don't know, it just, he very quickly, like I said, sort of just jumped into that role of, of being um, a fan favorite, which you don't always see with coaches because a lot of coaches haven't had a, a long stay in Edmonton and, and eventually uh, it turned out that he was uh, another one of those. I mean, look how many coaches Nugent Hopkins has had in his career in uh, 13 seasons. But yeah, it's it was a shame that uh, the team's tough start cost him. And, you know, you even heard player interviews where they basically said the same thing that, you know, we, we feel bad that, um, you know, our lack of getting results uh, costs two good guys their jobs. And it's, I mean, it's a matter of the sport though, right? And I'm sure that they'll both uh, land as a package somewhere. I have a feeling Woodcroft will bring Manson along. Those two work their way up through Bakersfield and uh, they'll, they'll find another spot. But yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's a shame that it didn't work out uh, longer in Edmonton because um, you looked at Woodcroft and it seemed like this is a guy who could have been the Oilers coach for a decade. 
if we ultimately do end up winning the Stanley Cup, um, you know, I'll be elated. But, uh, you know, there will be a sense of sadness that, that he won't be involved. But, right. um, yeah, I, I do think that, um, you know, it, it is a mistake. Um, but hopefully we can persevere and, you know, we'll see what we have with, with Chris Knobloch. But, I, yeah, it'll, it was almost a period of mourning, like you said, because of there's... Mm-hmm. A sense of heroism with him saving our season in 21-22 and the you know, the epic moments with him in, in the playoffs, especially against Calgary. It's a loss. And since Knobloch took over behind the bench, the Oilers have gone 11-3-0 and climbed to within one point of the final wildcard spot in the Western Conference. But when it was announced that the Oilers were hiring Connor McDavid's old junior coach, there was some noise from outside of Edmonton that McDavid is now running the organization. However, Knobloch was a qualified candidate for an NHL head coaching position. He had coached as an assistant in the NHL before and had won at virtually every level winning championships in the WHL and the OHL before uh, joining um, the Rangers uh farm team in Hartford, uh, like I said, as well as spending two years on uh, the Philadelphia Flyers staff. But um, McDavid also came out and rejected the notion that he had anything to do with the decision to bring him in. First, I just want to know what your thought was of the hire at the time. And um, have you noticed any major improvements under Knobloch that have uh, helped turn this uh, team season around? Um, The improvements are are hard to ignore. I mean, this team has done a complete 180 since he's arrived. Um, now, is it correlation or causation? I, we'll never know. Um, could this have been done under Jay? And is it a matter of McDavid and Ed Coleman others getting healthy? Yeah, probably. Um, but I guess, you know, what strikes me most um, under Coach Knobloch is the team's commitment to defense. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to fathom how they could be so porous um, and then suddenly flip a switch i'll give you an example um i was at the rangers game earlier this season and it had been a long time since i've seen a team despite the score being relatively close it was only three nothing toy with another team the rangers were making cross crease seam passes uh, backhand you know saucer passes for fun uh, like a hot knife through butter and the orders were completely incapable of uh of interrupting uh you know, a Harlem Globetrotter-like offensive rush uh, from the Rangers. And then now, yeah. you know, Darnell Nurse is, is living up to his contract, you know, or, or close to in terms of his, um, you know, playing every team's, you know, best players. I mean, he's looked fantastic. Yeah, I, exactly. And it, I mean, it, I, I'm a big Darnell Nurse fan as it is. Like, I'll, I'll say that right now. I and mean, I know he takes a lot of heat in this market and he's been a lightning rod for criticism, but I think even his biggest critic, if you look at him over the past month, you would say like, wow, this, this looks like a guy who's earning every bit of his contract. Exactly. Um, I, I, people, you know, just to touch on that for a second, they yeah. forget that the Oilers bridged him twice when he was more than willing to sign a long-term deal. And then, uh, yeah, he'd, you know, he'd probably be a $7 million defenseman right now if they would have just signed him long-term on the previous deal. He would, and then no one would, you know, bat an eye at that because that's the going rate um, for a, a top-pairing defenseman, which he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because of, you know, the lack of um, another true top-pairing defenseman being on the team, um, you know, for the first, you know, couple years of his contract extension, um, that shine that shone a light on him because 
he was asked to play the toughest, you know, minutes, the most amount of minutes. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of help around him. And now with Ekholm, you know, and, and a maturing Bouchard, um, and, and, and more team defense, I think, being prioritized in our block, I think that, you know, those are all ingredients that makes uh, Nurse and the Oilers as a whole far yeah. more defensively competent. For sure. And I read earlier today that under Knobloch, the Oilers have gone from a bottom three team in allowing rush chances to a top three team in the league in allowing rush chances. Now, like we said, it's even a smaller sample size than the one we were talking about from Woodcroft earlier, which at least spanned parts of three seasons. But um, if he's helped in any way cut down those chances against those like grade A chances where they're getting two on ones and three on twos, I mean, that's made such a difference to their goals against. Yeah, um, I mean, I think last night against the Blackhawks, you know, there was maybe one uh, really dangerous odd man rush, and that's something they've cut down a lot lately. Um, a, a lot of it, you know, you would think would have to do with being the the, the centerman, like the third player back on, on back checks, but it's really been um, a full team effort. Uh, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't really explain it. If, if the same personnel just playing completely different, it's, it's really hard to fathom. And, you know, like we said, there were some people who thought that the Oilers are just doing everything they can to appease McDavid by, you know, bringing in um, uh, a coach that he had when he was 15 in in junior hockey. But uh, McDavid even said, like, yeah, we've kept in touch here and there over the last eight years, but it's not like they've been in regular contact since uh, McDavid made the jump to the NHL in 2015. So uh, the idea that this coaching change was was done because McDavid requested it, like that's wrong at all. Like he he even came out and said in a, a media av- availability that uh, the Oilers had that he, Jay Woodcroft had never lost the room and that the Oilers were still playing for him and that they they didn't want to see him changed out. So um, you can kind of shut down those rumors right there, but. I think it had more to do with that Knobloch has a good relationship with Jeff Jackson. And, you know, when a new manager or CEO or head of hockey ops comes in, they're going to want to put their own guys in place. And Jeff Jackson, like we said, he has only been with the organization since August. And um, I know Jay Woodcroft did just sign a an extension before he got there, but I wouldn't have been surprised even if they made the playoffs if, uh, and maybe let's say they lost in the second round again or something like that, that uh, Jeff Jackson would have still uh, made the coaching change in the summer because this was his guy. He wanted Knobloch in. And um, as I kind of already alluded to, like this is uh, someone he wanted to get in there. Just the, the bad start to the season basically gave him an excuse to make the move sooner than he probably planned to. Can only think, you know, from McDavid's perspective, when he heard the news that Knobloch was brought in shortly after Jeff Jackson was made the CEO of, of the team, mm. uh, he was probably very annoyed. You know, there must have been an eye roll thinking about what the narrative probably would be. And I think this, yeah. like you said, this is a matter of a relationship between, you know, Chris and Jeff. But and he's McDavid not someone like LeBron. Kind of- like, he's not the kind of guy who wants to be you know, known as pulling the the strings behind the scene. Like he is very much a team first guy and I, I don't want any special treatment. I want to be one of the boys. And I think that that's another just quality to admire about him, that this is the best hockey player in the world by some margin. And he doesn't want any special treatment. 
he's so unconcerned with anything that isn't hockey. Uh, I, I think he, you know, he's made that very clear. Um, it, it's almost difficult to get him to talk about, you know, other things like we, you know, not to, to denigrate, you know, his, his personality, but I, I think that a lot of times it's a bit of a struggle for him um, to deal with media or, you know, discuss himself. Um, Everyone's um, got different personalities too. And hockey players, you know, just by trade are, are more humble than a lot of other professional athletes. And, you know, they're basically, I think it, it might be, you know, a Canadian thing too, because, you know, I mean, we've grown up here, you know, that from like a very young age, it's almost sort of ingrained in you to, you know, uh, not be all about yourself and put the team first and just always kind of be thankful and appreciative for everything. And it's not a a sport where you're going to see a lot of larger than life, overly charismatic personalities like you might see in the NFL or the NBA. Exactly. I mean, the players run the NBA Uh, and then McDavid, you know, especially even amongst hockey players, he's someone who tries to draw as little attention to himself as possible. So I think maybe the league could use that. Like, I'm sure that especially for the growth of hockey in the States, I'm sure that they would love for some of the players to become bigger draws, because like you said, that's what sells the game in the States. It's, It's more so. LeBron coming to town than the Cleveland Cavaliers when he was in his prime right there. So, and you know, there are going to be those big team names. Like you look at uh, the MLB, when the Yankees come to town, it doesn't matter who's on the Yankees. It's, it's the Yankees when the in the NBA, when the Lakers come to town, it's the Lakers. But for the most part, it's the big name stars that people come out to see. And um, I mean, I think the NHL has done a poor job of promoting its stars, uh, especially you know, through McDavid's career, they're they're already, I think, in the first year of Connor Bedard's career, doing a better job of marketing him than they they did in the first several years of McDavid's career. But, like you said, if he's not too overly concerned with that, and and you know, getting his name out there, I mean, look, he was just inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame earlier this month, and he rushed back. He took the red eye flight back because he wanted to be at practice the next day and not miss a day of practice. So that shows you how concerned he is about his team that even in a weekend where he's being honored for his excellence as one of the youngest athletes to ever be inducted into Canada's walk of fame, he still wants to be there for his team the next day and not uh, miss a day of work. Yeah, I mean, he, he's one of the, the premier athletes uh, on the planet, if not the best athlete on the planet. And, you know, like you pointed out about his profile uh, yeah. league-wide, or honestly, globally, it's it's kind of astonishing how anonymous he is relatively outside of Canada. Um, and really, to put a, an emphasis on that, uh, forgive the pronunciation, but NBA player Shai uh, Gilius Alexander yeah, was named... From- Canada's athlete of 2023 of the OKC Thunder. And I'm sorry, I'm sure he's great. And I don't really pay much attention to him. Mm -hmm. But to say that he had a better 2023 amongst Canadian Mm -hmm. athletes than McDavid's 153 point season. We got to start asking, what's the criteria here? No, I know that he has had a great season. And, you know, I have some friends who follow the NBA a little closer than I do. And um, like, yes, he's probably pushing for top five player um, in the NBA, which, you know, from a Canadian perspective is great for the growth of the game. But you look at what McDavid's done. I I have a good friend who really follows basketball, uh, Brian Swain. Uh, He works for the Edmonton Elks. He formerly was with TSN 1260. 
And I asked him, is there anything comparable in the 21st century in basketball to what McDavid did in the NHL last year? And he said, no. So for a guy like Brian, who is a hardcore NBA fan, for him to say that he can't think of one player, not LeBron, not Steph Curry, none of these guys, to have a season comparable to what McDavid did last year, that's a little surprising to me that he uh, wasn't uh, selected as uh, Canada's Athlete of the Year. Although I will say I thought it was very cool that Shy wore a uh, 1998 um, Team Canada Wayne Gretzky jersey to the ceremony, though. <laughs> that is a nice touch. And, and you know, that was cool. <laughs> Uh, nothing against him. I, no, it's nothing an amazing against him at all. Accomplishment, but yeah, I just I, I think you know maybe we're taking McDavid a little bit for granted, right? Um, but yeah, I, I think that, and you never want to become numb to his greatness, right? You and I think that because we watch him ninety plus times a year, including playoffs, we're just used to seeing this level of dominance night after night, and that's why it's so glaring when you know he was going on. Um, uh, a cold streak early in the year, which we'll, we'll get to in a bit. But yeah, just just to go back to Knobloch now, I mean that uh, that really has been uh, you know a, a great uh, addition for the team. Like it, it as bad as it was to to lose Woodcroft, I think that Knobloch has come in and he has exceeded expectations. He's turned this team around much like Woodcroft did two years ago. I love how candid he is in interviews. He'll tell you what he's thinking. Uh, the, the team in general and in, in basically every area has improved under him. So um, it, 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 while it's only a 14 game sample size, you, you have to be impressed with what he's been able to do with this team so far. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's, you know, you can't really ignore the results. 11, three, you know, an eight game yeah. winning streak. And they've really recovered their season from, from the brink of, you know, uh, facing, uh, three and a half months of a trudge towards uh, a playoff miss. It's really remarkable what he's managed to do. Without a doubt. And continuing on that, Paul Coffey, who was already working for the organization as special advisor to the owner in hockey operations, also stepped behind the bench as an assistant coach. So his first NHL coaching job comes at age 62, and the highest level of hockey he had previously coached was Junior A in Ontario. Post, what was your initial reaction when you heard that Coffee would be joining the coaching staff? And how much do you think his guidance has benefited the Oilers defenders over the past month? My initial reaction was one of, oh, here we go. Uh, you know, a lot of Oilers fans are very sensitive to the nepotism that can exist in the organization. Uh, so I was, I was sour on the, uh, on the personnel change, but it's hard to argue with early results. Um, uh, it's it's weird seeing someone who was one of the premier offensive defensemen in league history uh, coincidentally be on the bench when we're experiencing somewhat of a defensive renaissance. So I don't really know how that's working. Um, but I think you've really seen his influence benefit Evan Bouchard greatly in particular, who's, uh, I think, third right now in scoring amongst defensemen in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the way I look at it is like, his D partner, uh, Charlie Huddy, was the far less heralded player during his time in Edmonton, although he was um, inducted into the Oilers Hall of Fame uh, back in November. So, you know, credit to him. Um, but yeah, he, he never got the attention Coffee did. But following a, an almost two-decade career as a player in the NHL, 
Huddy then went on to coach in the NHL for over two decades and was an assistant coach in Edmonton, Dallas, and Winnipeg. So usually the best players don't always make the best coaches. So you could see a guy like Huddy uh, being a more successful NHL coach than Coffee. But, I mean, once again, just like Knobloch, the results have been excellent with Coffee back there. I think that the Oilers are making much better headman passes ever since coffee came in across the board even Vinny D'Arnais on like he's not known for his hands at all but I'm seeing him making better passes than I ever have before he's being more confident in his puck skills and I think the message from coffee to the entire defense is don't just chip it out like make a play with the puck I mean make a smart play but get it up into the forwards hands as quickly as possible if you have to go just off the glass and out that's fine but don't sacrifice an opportunity to make a play when you have the the room to make a pass and uh, even Darnell Nurse he is much more known for his skating ability than his passing ability that's how he gets the puck up ice and there was an instance where I saw probably the best long-range pass that he's ever completed in the NHL where he sprung Nuge for a breakaway. I'm trying to remember what game it was. Um, it early, was on this latest homestand. Was yeah. it Minnesota? Or, I, it might have been Minnesota. No, it was Anaheim. It was against Anaheim. Um, they fell behind early, and that was the goal that got them back tied. And I was just like, wow, who was that? I thought it was Bush at first. But like That was Darnell Nurse. He sprung him. And it just was right on the tape. Now, you're not expecting him to make a, you know, 150-put pass every time and send a guy in all alone on a breakaway. But it was uh, really impressive to see. And the fact that the Oilers defensemen are just starting to make more confident plays with the puck. Like, they're they're kind of playing in the mold that Paul Coffey was as a defenseman. And, you know, he's probably the best long-range passer in NHL history. So if he can pass some of that wisdom along, then, I mean, that's going to go a long way for this team. Yeah, like you said, um, I think maybe there there is some empowering going on from Paul uh, based on how the defensemen have breaking out of the zone and, and making stretch passes. Uh, they're taking an extra second, too, I noticed, to make decisions. Uh, the puck isn't as much of a grenade. Um, especially Bouchard, uh, you know, just to circle back to him. Because a lot of his game is taking that extra second to maybe geek around a defenseman, uh, find a pass that is maybe, um, you know, not present of mind to, you know, someone of lesser skill. Uh, his game is just really taken off. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think we also have to give a shout out to Mark Stewart, who's had an expanded role since uh, Dave Manson was let go as well. He was originally coaching the the penalty kill and you know you not not to say that Dave Manson was you know bad at his job by any means I think actually he was really helpful when he first uh came up from Bakersfield but you look at a guy like Mark Stewart he's only been out of the league for a handful of years and you know he understands penalty killing in the modern game he whereas like Manson's been retired for 20 years and Mark Stewart's probably actually killed penalties against a lot of these top attackers that the Oilers are still going up against. So I think he might understand certain tendencies that players have and can, you know, pass along some guidance to like, you know, this is what this guy likes to do or, you know, that guy likes to set up over there. So between those two guys coaching the defense, you have Mark Stewart, who is a completely different defenseman from Paul Coffey. They're almost sort of like the perfect blend where you have one coach who is the offensive-minded guy in coffee and is telling them to make more plays with the puck 
and you got Stewart who is helping in what he was a, a specialist at in the, in the NHL, and that's uh, killing penalties and defending his own end. Yeah, I think that's a really astute point. Um, ultimately, it's, it's very difficult to assess because, like you were saying earlier, um, uh, there was a lot of factors that caused the team uh, to, to struggle, and I, I'm wondering if maybe the inverse is true uh, with the others come up, where, yeah, they have a, a fresh look and a, a different mix in terms of strategies and systems from, from the coaching, but also health from the team. Um, you know, and maybe a little bit of strength of competition. There's so many factors um, that are playing a part in the Oilers' resurgence that it's hard to pinpoint one thing. But it is it is easy to make the delineation of the head coach. And post the Oilers have been significantly better in virtually every respect from a month ago. But is Connor McDavid returning to full health the single biggest reason the Oilers are on an eight game heater? I would say so. Uh, I think the rumored Achilles, or not Achilles, um, uh, oblique? Core in, oblique injury. Sorry. Yeah, I, I think that uh, his bread and butter is turning on a dime and making rapid movements. And um, to, to hamper that at all really takes away one of the core assets of his game. Um, and the others, you know, they live and die by their top players. So uh, it's, it's a huge factor. So yeah, I would say that um, of you know the probably dozen or so reasons uh, for their downfall and then their resurgence that is uh, that plays the biggest part. Yeah, and even though the Oilers struggled out of the gate, McDavid still put up eight points in his first five games. But then, like you said, he suffered that upper body injury that was rumored to be an oblique strain or pull uh, against the Jets. And he, if you remember, he couldn't play in overtime that game, and then he missed the next two games. Uh, it was believed to be a one to two week injury and he came back after eight days and uh, i do believe though if it wasn't for the heritage classic he probably would have sat out longer than two games but obviously he wanted to have that experience plus the oilers were on a losing streak so i'm sure he felt that he had to play through it because the team needed him but Connor mcdavid at 50 percent health is still better than most of the players in the league and you could just tell that he was playing hurt, though. Like you said, with the, uh, he didn't have his normal ability to turn on a dime. He, he, he didn't have the same explosiveness to beat defenders wide. It also looked like he was struggling to shoot the puck. And he dropped below a point per game for the first time since his rookie season in 2015-16. But we knew he wasn't going to stay at a 76-point pace all season. And now he finally looks like Connor McDavid again. He's pushing the pace. He's flying around the ice with the puck. He's creating scoring chances at will. And uh, he's even producing enough offense to win games on his own some nights. Uh, in fact, last night, McDavid became just the fifth player in NHL history to record double-digit point streaks 13 different times in his career. Uh, he also has 25 points during his 10-game point streak, including a pair of assists in the victory over the Blackhawks. So I think McDavid getting back to full health is the single biggest reason for the Oilers' success as of late. It, it really is. And, you know, he's he's climbed from, you know, being in the 90s in the scoring race to now being in the top 10, I think. Yeah. He's number seven as we speak. I mean, it just, it, it speaks to, like, how dominant he's been. And I went and looked um, over those last uh 10 games 
if anyone's even close to him. The, the next most points in the league is Kucherov with 18. So McDavid has sailed past him, and I have a feeling he's going to track him down eventually. But, um, you know, I don't know if you do any individual point predictions for the Oilers, but I predicted McDavid would put up 164 points this season, which is exactly two points per game. And I still think if it wasn't for his injury, he would have reached that number. But right now, like you said, he's tied for seventh in league scoring with 38 points in 24 games. That's a 126-point pace in 80 games. How many points do you think he'll finish with this season? And will it be enough to win his fourth consecutive Art Ross trophy? Yeah, I think the Art Ross is is his to lose. Um, I, I'm really not concerned about anyone else making a run for that. Nikita Kucherov does lead the league with 47 points, um, but that won't persist, especially because of how middling the Tampa Bay Lightning have been this season. Um, he will win the Art Ross. He he will, um, you know, probably also snag the Ted Lindsay. Um, yeah, I think that 130 points seems about right uh, for Connor at this point, based on the start he had, which uh, to recover to still be a 130-point player is absurd. Yeah, I mean, he's the only player that's done it in the last 27 years. And the fact that he still has a shot at it after, you know, playing through an injury early in the year, it speaks to his dominance. Um, I think he can even push it a little higher. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the 135 to 140 range. It's uh, We know that he turns it up another notch or two notches down the stretch run. So um, I fully expect that he's going to be right around two points per game for the final 40-ish games of the season. And, I mean, that's when he's gearing up for the playoffs. So I, I think that he'll take it up uh, to another level at that point. But, yeah, it's uh, the, the scoring title, I think that he'll track Kucherov down as well. Like I said, there, he's got three games in hand on him. So let's even say that he puts up five points in those uh, three games. Now you're up to 43. You're only four points behind Kucherov. You're going to make up that ground. Like It might take him until January to pass him in the standings, but I have a feeling that once he passes him, no one will be catching him for the rest of the way. I think the biggest factor in how many points he gets over the next 56 games is how many he wants. Uh, yeah. We see that when the Oilers are maybe you know in danger of running up the score a little bit, um, you know, he doesn't exactly go hard and his minutes are, are curtailed somewhat. So I think we often see McDavid, ha- you know, as Oilers fans who watch him as often as we do, we see him forfeit some scoring opportunities uh, when an offensive press isn't needed. Uh, so it, it really depends on uh, what he wants to do, which sounds a little bit uh, <laughs> conceited, but it, it's, it's, it's true. You know, he disguised the limit for this player. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at it, like you said, he finished with 153 points last year. Other than Dreisaitl, uh, he was 40 points ahead of his next closest non-teammate. There were two players that finished with 113 last year, and I believe those were Pasternak and Kucherov. So uh, that's the kind of dominance he is over every other superstar in the league. And, you know, realistically, in a healthy year, no one can contend with McDavid I mean I think that he should be he's won the last three Art Ross trophies I think he should be able to win the next three as well you look at him he's gonna if he does win it this year that would be his sixth which would tie him for the second most in NHL history with Gordie Howe and Mario Lemieux you look at Wayne Gretzky stands alone in ten uh, with in first with 10 how close do you think uh, McDavid can get to Gretzky in terms of Art Ross trophies Ooh, that's that's really difficult. Um, 
Like, do you think he's got another four in him after this year to tie the record? I want to say yes. I'm going to definitively say yes. Um, But I mean, health, especially once you uh, creep up to 30, can be such a factor in that. But really, that's that's what it depends on is is how healthy he can stay. And and, uh, you know, ultimately, is he um, on the same team with Leon Dreisaitl, which definitely gives him uh, a bit of an advantage. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely hoping so, but uh, I mean, yeah, there's to me, he should be able to hold on to the best player in the world title, at least I would think until 30, 31. And, you know, by that point, maybe you've seen some younger guys like Bedard or even a couple of players who haven't come in the league yet. Maybe it's Jack Hughes. Some of those younger guys come up and start to push him by that point because they'll be entering their prime and Connor will be sort of leaving his prime but even in his 30s i still fully expect him to be a consistent 100 point player he might not be putting up uh, 140 150 points anymore but um i mean he's going to be a dominant offensive player for a long time i think a good comparison is Sidney crosby um had it not been for mcdavid entering the league Sidney crosby probably would have been the nhl's best player until you know maybe as late as 2019 uh, or 2020 but McDavid entered the league in 1516, and in my estimation, was the best player by 2017. Yeah, uh, I mean, so, at, le- at least the best offensive player in the world by his second year in the league. Exactly. And, so, I mean, granted, Bedard is, is here. Um, unless a player of that caliber enters the league, I think McDavid's reign at the top will be a little bit longer than Crosby's, just based on that. Yeah, I think we can... I think now that it's been enough years have passed, you can say that by 2006, 2007, which was Crosby's second year, he ascended to that title of the best offensive player in the world. Uh, We'll just talk about offense for the purpose of this conversation. And then he probably held that title for 10 years. Now, there were brief moments where Ovechkin was either with him or might have briefly overtaken it. But for the most part, Crosby was the best offensive player in the world from 2006 to 2016. And then, like you said, now uh, in Connor's second year, he came in and, and took the crown and has basically held it now for the past eight years. But I don't see any real threats to him in the immediate future. Like, could Bedard become the best offensive player in the world eventually? Yeah, I think he's probably trending in that area. But I don't think that he will ascend to the top as, as quickly as maybe uh, Crosby or McDavid did. No, I think that's that's a very difficult bar. Um, the NHL right now is as star-studded as as I've seen it since I've been watching the game. Um, yeah, there's, there's so I mean, many there's great superstars players. on every team. Yeah, I, I think during you know the the two thousands, you know, early twenty tens, the star power of the league, you know, wasn't nearly what it what it is today. So, well, think um, of it in the early two thousands, um, before Crosby and Ovechkin came into the league, and Gretzky and Lemieux had retired. Uh, you had Yager, who was probably the de facto best player in the world. And then you had guys like Forsberg and Aginla who were sort of right there with him, maybe a, a step or two below, but the league was in desperate need of star power. And then you had Ovechkin and Crosby who kind of saved the league coming out of that lockout. But ever since then, it's just been a constant growth of more elite skill coming into the league every year. There really has. Um, I think McDavid, you know, just to circle back to your original question, I think he, he probably will win uh, four or more Art Ross trophies. Um, but yeah, again, health being the biggest factor. And we still don't really know what the ceiling is on Connor Bedard. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, even if McDavid doesn't break the record, like let's say he gets to eight or nine Art Ross trophies, the fact that he even got that close to Wayne Gretzky is remarkable. It is. It's it's hard to fathom that you know he's in the same territory, considering you know it, it's a triple hard salary cap <laughs> and and you know there's 32 teams. It's it's even more impressive. But the one other factor is that uh, Gretzky's career and Lemieux's career lined up pretty evenly. Like Wayne is five years older, but still, like those two guys played against each other for the bulk of their careers. Uh, McDavid hasn't had an equal yet. He hasn't had his Lemieux, and maybe that will be Bedard. But there, there still hasn't been a player who's come in and challenged him for Art Ross trophies the way Lemieux eventually did, uh, taking the Art Ross from Wayne, and then Wayne would take it back from him uh, in the late '80s, early '90s. But um, after, I mean, years of dominance of Wayne just owning that trophy. But right now, it seems like it's Connors, and uh, I don't see, you know, it, like I said, in a healthy year. Uh, he should be able to finish 20, even 30 points ahead of uh, the next closest competitor. Yeah, it's not close. No. Um, And uh, speaking of offensive stars, we've also seen Evan Bouchard take a massive step forward here in his third full NHL season, emerging as an elite offensive defenseman. He's on pace for an incredible 95 points this year. Uh, Post, he was drafted 10th overall by the Oilers back in 2018 to be an offensive threat on the back end. But did you ever envision him reaching this level of production? Uh, I did, actually. In the offseason, I was speaking with a few friends, and and I thought that, you know, Bouchard was going to be a point per game this season, and there was definitely some pushback on that. But I think a lot of it is circumstance. I mean, he's already an an offensively gifted defenseman, um, but just the fact that he's on probably the greatest power play the game has ever seen yeah with two of the best players in the nhl um skill and circumstance are aligning to a point where he probably should be a point per game and it it really shouldn't be a big surprise exactly i mean it's it's hard to believe that the oilers haven't had a defenseman crack 50 points since sheldon surrey in 2008 2009 I mean, that was 15 years ago, and Bouchard is already at 30 points. Like He's going to sail past 50 points by the All-Star break. So I thought that I was having a reasonable projection before the season uh, saying that he would get 64 points. And here he is now. I mean, I think that 70 would be at least a lock at this point, right? It it would. Um, To get more specific, I said that Bouchard would have more points than Connor Bedard this season. Uh, which And you might still be right about that. I mean, I, I don't know 100% if he'll be right on that, but I mean, he does have the benefit of playing um, with some pretty special players. I mean, just to take this back to Paul Coffey, who's coaching uh, Bouchard, he had the luxury of playing with Gretzky in his prime in Edmonton and then playing with Lemieux in his prime in Pittsburgh. And if you ever wonder why Paul Coffey retired as I think sixth all time in assists in NHL history, not for defensemen, but when he retired, I believe he was sixth in NHL history for any player. I mean, having the opportunity to play with both of those players played a huge factor in it. And Bouchard, 
I'm sure he would be an offensive star wherever he went. I know the New York Rangers were apparently interested in him prior to uh, the 2018 draft. And I'm sure that uh, I think Bob McKenzie actually had him projected to go fourth overall that year, but he ended up falling to the Oilers at 10th. And man, has that worked out because uh, after a few years of being patient with the kid, he has grown into a superstar producer on the back end. And like we said, getting to play on arguably, if not, definitively the best power play in NHL history with McDavid and Dreisaitl. We're talking about a player who is pushing for 90-plus points as a D-man. Exactly. I think arguably, you know, I can't think of a defenseman right now who has a better point shot. Um, it's. I think he has probably has the best point shot in the league at this point. You know, it, it's it's accurate, you know, while, you know, hitting nearly 100, you know, uh, kilometers an hour. Uh, Miles. Corners. Or, sorry, it was it was miles. Okay. Hundred miles an hour. Yeah, hundred hundred miles an hour. Um, you know, going bar down. Like, uh, you know, it's getting really close to supplanting Drysidle's one timer as the biggest weapon on the Oilers' power play. I believe he scored on three straight shots recently. I, I mean, <laughs> not all in the same game, but he took three shots and they all went in the net consecutively. Now, the Oilers. I mean, think think of what they have on the power play, like. We talked about it. Best player in the world in McDavid. Um, an, an ar- arguably one of the two or three best players in the world in Dreisaitl. I think he's the second best player in the world. But with an unreal one-timer and uh, incredible playmaking abilities as well. You've got Nugent Hopkins, who's so skilled and sure-handed with the puck. And then you've got Hyman, who's like you know a, a Tasmanian devil in front of the net, banging in every loose puck and tipping in every puck that's near him. That he, and adding Evan Bouchard now to that mix who can rip the puck from the blue line. I mean, they have so many different options and weapons on that power play. It's it just not to take anything away from Tyson Berry, but anyone who thought that the power play would drop off when they, they lost him, I mean, Bouchard has come in and made it even better. Exactly. And it's not just the fact that everyone on the power play is so good. It's that there's no redundancy. Everyone has a different role and they just mesh together so well. Exactly. I, I mean, you got, like we said, Nuge in the bumper spot, Hyman is the net front presence, Leon is set up for that one-timer, and even though the opposition knows it's coming, you know, they, you, you'd be surprised how many times he scores from there, and such a sharp angle, too. A lot of them are just, like, right above the goal line, and of course, you've got McDavid flying around the offensive zone, creating magic. I mean, he can score and create plays from just about anywhere, but having that big shot from the point, I mean... That gives me a, a lot of confidence that this power play is going to be hovering around 30% for years to come. I think so as well. And, and you know, just to build off that fact, uh, the Oilers have killed, uh, what is it, 24 of 25 uh, penalties of late. So, you know, I got a message from the a, biggest factor. I got a message from a friend of mine last night who was, who uh, we were talking about it. It's 30 of their last 31 penalties they've killed off. Uh, I mean, that's. To think that that would happen to this team uh, was unthinkable. Where where it was, yeah. I mean, literally, they have had the best penalty kill in the league over this recent stretch. And (laughs) I I think Oilers fans would have settled for middle of the pack on the PK. (laughs) Exactly. If your penalty kill and your power play are are clicking at this rate, you know, it's no wonder the team looks borderline unbeatable these these last number of games. Yeah, and, and I mean... Uh, just to take this back to Knobloch for a second, I, I dug into some of the numbers of all the teams since he took over. And this this tweet's a little outdated now. It was from December 9th, which was 
uh, about five days ago. But um, at the at the time, and these numbers have even gone up since because the Oilers have kept winning. But they were fourth in the league in. This is just since uh, November 13th, I should say, since he took over behind the bench. They were fourth in the league in points percentage. I believe they're up to third now. Uh, Goals for per game, they were first. Goals against per game, they were 13th. I believe that's climbed up now as well. Uh, Power play, they were third in the league. And penalty kill, they were sixth. So that penalty kill is right at the top. Power play in the top three. I mean, first in the league in goals, and defensively, they're close to top 10. I mean, when you're scoring as much as the Oilers are, and you're only giving up one or two goals a night, I mean, Stuart Skinner has a 1.7 goals against average over this run. He's played seven of those eight games, and in the one game Pickard played, he only allowed a single goal. So they're giving up basically under two goals a game, and they're scoring over four goals a game. And that's a, a pretty good recipe for an eight-game winning streak. Uh, yeah, I mean, you hope it can continue. And, you know, and we know it's not. not. We, know they're, we know they're not going to continually average four and a half goals a game for the rest of the season. But, um, I mean, I don't think that it's going to drop off significantly either. I, I think this is a team that should be probably right around that four goals a game mark. And it's good to know that, you know, we don't need to score four or five goals a game just to have a chance at winning. Um, yeah, the fact that we've stopped the bleeding defensively is great. Uh, I know the goals will come, but it's a matter of, you know, once this, you know, hot streak dies down and we like, regress to the mean a little bit, where does that settle? Yeah, like to give you an example, last year when they scored 325 goals in 82 games, I mean... There was only one other team, I believe, that cracked 300 goals, and they were just barely over. It was the Bruins and the Oilers like, were 20-plus goals past them. But 325 goals is 3.96 goals per game. So for them to average four goals a game, you're talking about equaling the level that they were at last year when McDavid had his 153-point season, Dreisaitl had his 128-point season, the Oilers had the best power play in NHL history. So to even be in that category where they're producing at the same rate is phenomenal i i don't know if it's like we said sustainable for the whole year but you'd like to see them you know, at least closer to uh that that four goal game but I, I i don't think anyone like i said is expecting them to get four goals every single night no no definitely not um but i mean if they can keep cutting down the goals against as much as they have even if it climbs up a little bit that'll be a big factor in um, just to finish up on Bouchard, because he's such an important part of the power play and can produce these huge numbers, how concerned are you with his defensive ability? Like, Do you think that he needs to get a lot better in his own end, or can you kind of live with some of the mistakes because of uh, what he can bring at, at the other end of the ice? I think he has improved, uh, and especially at his cap hit. Um, it, it's something that you can't really gripe about too much. I mean, he's already a, a top three, four, let's say, offensive defenseman in the NHL as of right now. And making $3.9 million. Exactly. So, I mean, we have to be really careful with, uh, you know, our complaints and our expectations of a player uh, producing um, what he is. I, I, <laughs> think, I think, about, you know, sorry. sorry. No, no, I was going to say, think about what that uh, next paycheck is going to look like in the summer of 2025. Oh, he's going to get paid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're beyond that. I think we're talking uh, about Darnell Nurse money. We are absolutely. I, I, I was prepared to give him, you know, uh, an eight by eight uh, in the summer. Uh, I think they should. I think they should try to extend him. Uh, if if he would do eight by eight, 
do that all day because I'll tell you what, if he has a 90-point season or back-to-back 90-point seasons, just like we said, if he's able to continue on at this level, then yeah, that contract is looking like close to double digits. So get him signed as quickly as possible. He'll be using Kale Makara as a comparable. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's not a great position for us. Yeah, the sooner we can get him committed long-term, the better. But uh, you know, it's up to him and his agent to see if they want to squeeze what they can out of the Oilers. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I, I think for me, yes, uh, he might only be average defensively, but because he has such an elite skill... I can overlook the odd mistake because you're you're not going to have the the perfect two way defender when they can put up that type of offense. It's just it's such a uh, an incredible quality to have that he can produce points at this clip. So if you want him to be the perfect two way defenseman, he's never going to be that. But you'd like to think that he will also not have. Um, a glaring mistake every single game that leads to either a goal against or a, a scoring chance for the other team. It's just, it's just a matter of cutting those down and and just sort of taking away the grade A chances, I would say. And I've noticed that he's really cut down on those mistakes. And he's yeah. actually made some, you know, some pretty impressive defensive plays in the last uh, in the last week or so. And um, I think that that's to be commended. And yeah, you know, he's he's not going to be. Uh, prime Adam Larson defensively, but we don't need no. him to be that. No, and, and look, I, I mean, I'm sure Mark Stewart is working with him on some, you know, defensive areas of, you know, hey, you can clean up uh, your game a little bit here, or just, you know, th- if you're in a tough spot, this is what you should do. Uh, but he doesn't, like I said, need to be um, the 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 Chris Russell type, the Adam Larson type, who's you know uh, com- completely committed to the defensive side of the puck. I mean, uh, as long as he, like I said, as long as he's average to passable in his own end that's that's enough for me i i don't think he needs to be like a a defensive stalwart or anything of course not and while the team in front of him has drastically improved stewart skinner has also shaken off his rough start to the season with consistently stellar goaltending over the streak i already kind of talked about him but he has a 7-0-0 record with a 1.70 goals against average and 935 save percentage as well as one shutout in his last seven games Post, I know that this sample size isn't, you know, the largest that you'd like to see from a goaltender, but uh, Skinner really appears to have regained his all-star form from a year ago. And I just want to know, how comfortable are you with Skinner and Calvin Pickard between the pipes going forward? Or do you think that they still need to bring in another goaltender? If we have designs on winning the Stanley Cup, um, I would like to see them maybe explore an upgrade. Uh, in the in the backup goaltender position, but yeah, I do me too. Confident. I don't I don't think they're getting a starter. That's the thing. Like I mean, Stuart Skinner is going to be their starter, but someone who can sort of like give him a little more relief. I think that we can win the Stanley Cup with Stuart Skinner as a starting goaltender. So uh, I'm not too concerned about him. It, it's more so uh, his know, critics if, will say that you can't though after last year. But I mean, think about it. Like they really rode him hard last year and. He came in basically from the start of the season and played more games than he was expected. We thought it was going to be like a 30-50 split with Campbell playing 50, Stewart playing 30, and it ended up being the opposite. It was like Campbell who was around 30 and Skinner who was over 50. And when you look at that, he was probably a little worn out going through the rigors of his first NHL season and kind of wore down by the second round against Vegas. 
That's the point exactly that I'm concerned about is bringing in an upgrade in the backup position to make sure that Skinner is fresh for the playoffs. Because like you said, I think you could see uh, the wear and tear of the season on him. And, you know, when it came time uh, for Jack Campbell to play in relief, he was great. Um, But will we get that level of quality goaltending should, you know, Stuart Skinner show signs of fatigue again? Uh, Avoiding that is priority one, but you want to have a reliable tandem. It's a matter of can some combination of Calvin Pickard, Mm -hmm. possibly Jack Campbell or mystery box player, give Skinner that extra 10, you know, you know, eight games, let's say, of rest that he'll need. However, I do want to give a shout out to um, Calvin Pickard, though, on picking up his first NHL win in nearly two full calendar years. And, you know, for a guy who's played 13 years of pro hockey and has only made it into 119 NHL games, this is a guy who really loves the game. I mean, you you don't spend that many years in the minors grinding it out if, if you're not a, a hockey fanatic. And, you know, he has, like I said, carved out a pretty good career for himself. He's come up to the NHL when called upon. And, um, you know, he, he's just giving the Oilers steady, competent goaltending. Nothing spectacular, but when he got in there, He's he's made the saves he's had to make, and I think that's something that was really frustrating to Oilers fans because they weren't getting that from Jack Campbell earlier, earlier in the year. And yes, Campbell can make some like five bell highlight reel saves, but then he'll also let in a stinker, and you're just like, well, that basically just undid it. You just kind of know what you're getting with Pickard. He's going to come in, he's going to make the saves he has to make, and just sort of give you that that steady goaltending that, like I said, that the Oilers weren't getting uh, earlier in the year. I was very impressed by his one outing so far. And if we can get something remotely close to that, um, then yeah, I, I do think that there's a chance that, um, you know, we, we could have the, the subsequent rest that will be required because rest is a weapon. And I know yep. that's a, a bad word in, in hockey culture. Cause, uh, <laughs> I know they don't like, <laughs> it's, it's, you think about, uh, the, the maintenance days that you see in the NBA or the, you know, it's not really a hockey thing. And I mean, for, because it's such a team game too, like you, you need to have like all your components going. And, um, I mean like the Oilers are never going to just give McDavid and Dreisaitl a, a day off in February when like during the season, I mean, they, if they want to rest the final game of the season, when a playoff spot is locked up, that's fine. But, um, yeah, they're, they're not going to have any of those like rest days that, that we see in other sports. No, but what they can give them is, you know, reduced minutes and a third period of a game that's, that's in hand, yeah. you know, I like mean, if finding you have those f- extra minutes. Exactly. If you have a 5-2 lead uh, and, you, and you want McDavid and Dreisaitl to just sit the last 10 minutes of the game and, and give the fourth line a couple extra shifts, then I'm fine with that. And that's maybe a, one thing that is a little different from McDavid to Gretzky, because Gretzky was always sniffing for more points. Like when he had five points in the game, he wanted six. When he had six, he wanted seven. And, and he didn't stop. He approached every shift like I am trying to maximize my chances and, and score every time I'm out there or set up a play every time I'm out there. Connor, you know, that that might be why he doesn't. Well, I mean, obviously, the the errors are a big factor, too. But um, just something that's different about the game now that they and they didn't track the minutes played back in the 80s either. I'm sure there were a lot of nights where Gretzky played um, upwards of 25 or closer to 30 minutes. But there there was no off switch for him. He was trying to push his offensive totals as high as he could every time he was out there. 
Yeah, and McDavid just isn't wired that way. And I think, you know, hockey is a, a little bit more taxing now than it probably was then, which does play a factor. I think it's the coach's decision as much as everything. Like, I mean, let's say that there is a time in the in the future where Connor gets his seventh point of the game early in the third period. Now, obviously, he'd have to have like a four point first or something like that and three in the second. But if he's sitting at seven points and there's 18 minutes left in the third, I don't think you want to sit him. You want to have him try and go for Sittler's record, right? I don't think the Oilers would do that. I mean, we know that Dave Tippett was notorious for you know, mm-hmm. for never giving him an opportunity to do that. He's had some six point games, and yeah, and then that was his night. Um, yeah, he's yeah. never he's never beaten six. But I mean, man, it's just like like you look at the night Gagne had eight, and there's only been thirteen players in NHL history who've ever even had a, an eight point game, and Gagne is the most recent example of uh, coming up on twelve years ago now. But I just think if, if Connor's ever close, like give him a shot at it because there is going to be a night. I'm sure of it. I don't know if he'll hit 10, but there will be a night where it's going to be one of the worst teams in the league. They're going to be having to play in Calgary the night before, and they're going to roll into Edmonton and it's going to be a cold winter night and it's a bad team already. And the Oilers are just going to jump on him and McDavid's going to light them up. But uh, yeah, I, I'd like to think that they wouldn't hold him back if he's like pushing for history. I would like to be on the same wavelength, but we've seen too many instances where, you know, a situation akin to that has happened and they just, it's mm-hmm. not a priority. It hasn't been under any of the previous coaches and we haven't had that with Knobloch yet. So maybe that'll be a, a bit of a difference in philosophy, but we, we just haven't seen that. Yeah. And he knows the players so well too. I mean, that's an, as much as people want to harp on that of the, the connection that McDavid has to Knobloch and Jeff Jackson previously. I mean, um, uh, the comfortability factor and and you know knowing the player even if it was from years ago I mean that that still is a benefit and um, I, I think that also probably eased Knobloch's transition if we're if we're just you know talking about uh, coming into a new environment going from coaching in Hartford in the AHL to Edmonton in the NHL just having some familiarity with not only McDavid but he also coached Connor Brown there just um, some some familiar faces probably just made it feel like uh, just a little more of a homecoming for him, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think that's fair. And uh, just to finish up tonight, I want to talk a little about Sam Gagne. I mean, uh, he's come in and given the Oilers some added skill on the fourth line. He makes the most of his limited ice time, and uh, he's just a fan favorite in oil country. So, Post, I just want to ask you, how much have you enjoyed seeing number 89 back in orange and blue this season? Immensely. Uh, seeing him back here for a third tour of duty, just it warms the heart. Um, I've actually been in the building for three of his goals this year against Dallas. Were you at the Dallas, Dallas game? Oh, okay. I was, yeah. And then I was at the game last night against Chicago. Um, oh, it, nice. it's, it's just such a great feeling to see Sam uh, not only be here, but be contributing. And contributing to um, uh, uh, kind of a, a minor you know, miracle in the Oilers um, recuperating their season. Uh, it, every time he scores, it makes you wonder what year it is. Uh, so there's some nostalgia bait in that as well. Um, it's just such a great story. Um, and the fact that we're wearing our correct uniforms again, uh, makes it feel even more, uh, <laughs> like a, like a retro night from 2013. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I love Gagne. He's, he's one of my favorite players when he first came into the league. I mean, we're both born in 89. I like that he wears that on his Jersey too. And, you know, the highlight reel shootout goals we saw early in his career were always so fun to watch. No one will ever forget the eight point game from our generation. It's just, 
you know, it's ingrained in our minds. You can almost like replay every goal in your head. You can just sort of see it that because we've watched those highlights so many times over the years uh, of just it getting shown either on Oilers broadcast or we've, you know, been seeking it out on YouTube on our own. But um, yeah, he's, he's just brought nothing but good vibes to. And the fact that he's friends with McDavid and that he loves being an Oiler so much. I mean, you would have probably seen that interview he did on the ice. I watched the the clip of it on Twitter today, but just speaking about how this is the best fan base in the league, you know, there's no other place he'd rather play. I mean, this is a guy who truly loves being an Oiler. And in the last 20 years, I don't know how many guys probably Ryan Smith would, would be at the top, but have shown that much passion for playing in this city and for this team. And to see him back with the Oilers, like you said, for the third time, the first player to ever have three tours of duty here. It's just been awesome. And uh, he, this is a guy who's also played over a thousand games in the league, but only has 11 playoff games. And I, I can't wait for him to finally get to play in his first playoff game as an Edmonton Oiler. It will have taken 17 years by the time it happens. And he, and he was 17 years old when he was drafted. So literally it took him half his life to get to this point. And um, yeah, it's just, it's going to be fantastic. And I hope he's able to score a goal this spring too. So, uh, get that first playoff goal as well. I'm really glad you mentioned that Eric, uh, the fact that Sam Gagne hasn't played a playoff game as an Edmonton Oiler feels like a bit of a crime. He's only played an 11 playoff games period in 16 seasons. I mean, he's just been on some really bad teams and we, and I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I mean, if you think about it, if the Oilers do end up winning a Stanley cup in the next year or two. Can you imagine the the good feelings that it's going to be to just watch Gagne lift that cup after everything he's been through? I I think it'll be it'll be close between him and Nugent Hopkins, who I will feel more weepy eyed for seeing Mm -hmm. them, you know, with with a Stanley Cup ring. But it's it's such a good story. Yeah, Uh, you know, the these uh, instances like these are rare, and you really need to relish them when when they happen. Yeah, the the crowd pop when the cup gets handed to Gagne, I think will be one of the biggest. Like obviously Connor lifting it first, just lifting the Stanley Cup period is going to be massive. But as the cup gets handed down the line and you see guys like Leon lift it, Nuge lift it. I mean, yeah, everyone's going to be so pumped for them. But just because Gagne has such a history in this city. Uh, it's going to be an incredible moment. I'm sure that there will be tons of framed pictures and posters sold of Gagne with uh, the cup over his head. I mean, that'll be a popular one with fans for sure. So, yeah, I I know we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about the Stanley Cup when the Oilers are still just trying to get back into the playoff picture. But, I mean, we know where this team is supposed to be. We know what they're capable of. And, um, yeah, that's one of the things I'm most looking forward to the playoffs last spring is that Gagne will finally get to play in a playoff game. He missed that chance in 2020 that he should have had, getting traded at the deadline as a part of that uh, package for uh, Andreas Athesiu. But, man, I mean, I, I hope that uh, that Gagne is uh, able to finally you know, realize that that part of his uh, his NHL dream this year. Yeah, I mean the the cup order pass. I, someone's been surveilling my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, I've talked about it on previous episodes before. I I think it has to go to Leon first after Connor. It just. I, I mean, I know Nuge has been there the longest, but I mean, it just it seems like Connor to Leon has to be it. But then Nuge would get it next for sure. That is that is a hundred percent the top three order. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, and then I, I honestly, if they did win this, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes from Nuge to 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 Gagne after that. I mean, you kind of have to based on you know 
what the what they've been through in this city, and then you know after that, you know maybe a, a veteran like Derek Ryan and so on. But well, yeah, I, I can't say that I, uh, I've just I've had this uh, in my head for so long. <laughs> I've, I've replayed this over and over. <laughs> it will it will make up for some. Well, you know, I it will make up for uh, not winning it in 06. Although I'll, I'll always be disappointed that Ryan Smith didn't get to have that moment, but. Uh, getting to see the Oilers back with a cup in, in the McDavid era. They deserve to, to win a cup in the McDavid era, and I, I'm confident they will. And, and really, I, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than by talking about the Oilers winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, I definitely want to have you back on the show again later on this season, and hopefully they're in a better spot at that point where we're talking about them comfortably in a playoff spot and uh, pushing towards uh, reaching that ultimate goal that we're kind of dreaming about at this moment. Well, it's great to be here off the heels of an eight-game win streak, so yeah. it's not quite as macabre as I thought it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing, man. Okay, uh, just before we uh, call it a night, where can people find you on uh, social? Uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, or, or X, I, I guess I, I can't. I still call it, I, I don't think I'm ever going to call it X. It, it's Twitter to me. I, I think it's too fun to just refer to it as Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, just uh, post Cologne uh, on, on those platforms. Okay, everyone go give post a follow. And you can also follow me at Eric J. Friesen. And you can follow this podcast at 99ForeverPod. So I appreciate everyone for listening. Post, also appreciate you taking the time to talk some Oilers hockey with me today. And like we said, uh, we picked a good time coming off an eight-game heater. And hopefully they can tie the franchise record for longest winning streak in franchise history uh, tomorrow night against Tampa Bay. Here's to doing that. All right, so for Post Cologne, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.